0: Hi, folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is a conversation Rory had with Rick O'Shea on, on his own book, Gaffes, and Rick's recommended books for social change and his own experiences of growing up in social housing. It's a terrific listen. If you want to get these podcasts as quickly as we record them and turn them around, they're all available in one feed completely plea free at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack it's the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a very cheap point nowadays sadly and uh, it keeps these mics on and conversations happening it is the only way we keep the show on the road we have no ads we have no sponsors we rely on you if you'd like to gift a subscription all you got to do is email info at shack.ie with the subject line gift subscription and we'll do the rest for you from there Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for telling everybody about it. But please, please, please help this struggling uh, podcast platform keep going into the new year. We really appreciate it. One more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast.
1: Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. I'm delighted to have on the podcast today, Ricochet, who many listeners will know as a very familiar voice in Ireland, who is currently um, has the Daytime Gold Show with Ricochet on RTE Gold and is also um one of Ireland's at uh, the host Ireland's biggest book club, is it, Rick?
2: Well, I don't like to boast Rory, but yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I, I run a book club on Facebook that these days has almost forty thousand people in it. So That's yeah. That's incredible. We've been incredible. doing that for the last eight or nine years.
1: Yeah, no, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks a million for coming on.
2: Not at all. My, my my pleasure. I was reading the book at the time and as well, you know, I was saying nice things about the book. And yeah, you know, if uh, if if I can come and have a chat with anybody about something that's not the normal part of my job every day, it's lovely to be asked to do something that that's something I've never been asked to do before. So, yeah.
1: Great, great. No, no. And I was really um, taken, you know, by your positive comments about the book and uh, gaffes, which listeners will be well familiar with me banging on about at this stage. But listen, you also have won a really interesting accolade. I think it was Sexiest Radio Voice in
2: 2009. Gowsers. Somebody put that on my (laughs) Wikipedia page a very long time ago. I've done loads of things since 2009. I mean, a fair few bits and pieces. And as a result of it, I can never get it removed. It's stuck there forever because things exist on the internet. And uh, I don't think it would matter if I won a, a Nobel Prize in the morning. If I won Peace, for instance, I still think that would come up first.
1: I think so. And really I was thinking like you don't need to do anything after you've won that. That's kind of it. Like as a I've as had a radio to presenter, on since really.
2: then. Yeah, yeah. I've had to struggle on since then, sadly. Yeah. I know it's all been downhill really.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. Well, listen, we'll we'll we're keeping that in mind. And I'm listening to your, your tones now as we go. Rick, just yeah, maybe to start with, because partly of why um I thought it'd be really interesting to get you on and you know, we connected um on in through the sewer of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and tried to find a way through some pipes that weren't quite as sure as others, but um, to avoid any more analogies, around your own background and growing up and in social housing and council housing. And tell us a bit about that, because, you know, part of it, you know, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about it in terms of the book, but part of it, I really wanted to, I suppose, get across, was overcoming this idea that social housing was a failed way of doing housing and of living. And um, for you, what was it like?
2: yeah i i the thing about my family story is that it it runs the complete gamut so my, my dad comes from a small village in offaly and he he grew up in a in a cottage in a small village but my mum's family come from a tenement just off uh, the bottom end of Clambrassel Street so right. my, my mum grew up in one of the last tenements left in Dublin before they were moved out at the beginning of the 1960s just as yeah. they were beginning to expand Clambrassel Street the end that runs down in towards St Patrick's Cathedral and they were one of the last ones moved out from there now her family had come from there they'd moved from a different tenement elsewhere it was one of those ones with 17 people to a floor and uh, multiple families all living in the same rooms everybody knew everybody else uh, so my mum grew up in 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 the heart of the Liberties, and then they were moved out to what was considered the, the you know the exciting new social housing experiments. They were moved out to a place called David House in Dremna which is on yeah. the canal, um, and they were. Council flats, they were moved out there at the beginning of the 1960s into what was called a maisonette. If anybody knows those kinds of uh, flats that are built where on the ground floor, there are there's one-floor flats, and then above them there are the two-floor. So essentially a house built on top of the flats below it. Um, and that's where my mum grew up and her family grew up, and it's where she met my dad. And that's where I was born in 1973, and I lived the first year and a half of my life there until my mum and dad finally got a place and moved out together.
1: That's incredible! Incredible history of of housing, and in terms of the tenements, did you talk to him about what it was like there?
2: Yeah, and it's it's, it's strange. I've only had this conversation with my mum in in the last few years. I went to Henrietta Street, and if people have never been to the, the museum at fourteen Henrietta Street. Um, it, it, it's the closest thing Dublin has to to a tenement museum, and it is mm. a building that's kept in pretty much the condition that it would have been in in the at the beginning of the the twentieth century, last part of the nineteenth century. And we we talked about it, and so yeah, I did. I, I had conversations with her. I remember I was I was writing something a few years ago about uh, about homelessness. I wrote a piece for an anthology, and I asked her when they were growing up in the kind of forties and fifties. So, how were homeless people p- part of you know their world and what? And yeah. my mom said we didn't have homeless people. People would come in and they'd sleep. On the, the 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 landing at night, and if you had something extra, if you had an extra boiled egg, you'd give it to them, and then people would just pop in, stick their head in, they'd sleep in your house, and then they'd disappear the following day. People didn't sleep on the streets because everybody just in those situations in that part of Dublin all bunked in together. That's
1: incredible. And what out of interest did you write in relation to homelessness in the, the anthology?
2: Yeah, there, there was an anthology that, that, that came out a few years ago, Um, about, I mean, pre-COVID, so I think 18, and I was asked to just write a non-fiction piece about it. And I did I did a piece about Molesworth Street at the time was undergoing. Uh, there were a couple of building sites there. There were some very prominent uh, new buildings that are there now, including the building that now has the ivy in it and, and all of those, that that stretch of buildings yeah. all the way down along there. And obviously, it is a place that has had over the course of time homeless people sleeping both on the street and in the streets surrounding it as well. It had one man die there quite publicly and quite well known, right on the steps of Dalharran. That's right, and John yeah, so yeah. And it it made a contrast for me in 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 the piece that I wrote. Can I remember much else about it? It's about five years ago. It's a long. It's you, you, if you went looking for the anthology, you'd find it.
1: Yeah, very good, very good. No, no, no and it's important. In terms of thinking that and seeing how, you know, living in Dublin, um, I'm living here probably over 20 years now and seeing the city, I, I am often struck by that. You know, you see how much some buildings, you know, go up literally overnight, these huge as <laughs> the songs, the glass cages and the exclusion of people from the city. You know, the people who live there, the people who are uh, part of it. And it's quite Something around I think now that is often overlooked that people are the city
2: there's a thing of and it's weird the uh, I only really noticed this property when I was going to London a few years, years back, and I read a couple of articles in The Guardian about private spaces because you, you know in some of these enormous buildings that have been built in in parts of London, there are what are ostensibly public spaces that exist in the centre of these there are walkways, there are throughways. But they're all owned by private companies. And in in theory, they're they're gated off at night. If you want them to be gated off, you can be thrown in by private security companies from there. They're not part of the public surrounds. And you start to see that, you know, kind of more and more with with larger buildings of that kind that have been, that have been built in Dublin, even just just down the road from, from where I live. So I haven't ended up go, going very far. I i, I the, the 25 words, the less version of it is my mum and dad moved out in 74, 75 to a house in Crumlin, to one of the old, one of the original houses built in the one of the council houses there yeah. and they bought it from uh the dublin city corporation using a corporation mortgage which my dad was paying off about nine quid a week or whatever it was for the following t- 25 years and after that when i moved out i was i was a renter so i rented i rented forever all the way through until i bought my first house four years ago now and i live in believe it or not an old council house in inchcore in, in uh, yeah. dublin so just down the road from where I am and right next to where I uh, I was born in, in Davitt House there's a brand new development that's just been put up it is one of the ones you talk about in the book it is presumably owned by a real estate investment trust uh, it is one of those ones that has uh, apartments for rent for 1900 to 3000 euro a month depending on the number of bedrooms that you want and again it has one of those boxed off interior spaces there's a big lovely wonderful courtyard that sweeps through from one street out onto the canal uh, but you know you, you need a tag or a pass to get through from from one place to the other
1: yeah and i know even within those buildings as well there's issues that people can't use the actual space and children and that they can't actually use those open spaces that they're just simply maintained as you know part of the planning regulations to put in a bit of open green space but they're not actually allowed to be used
2: yeah i mean i read i can't remember the name of the building i read a wonderful story again in in london a, a, a couple of years ago and it was a building that i think had been built by an irish company and it was one of those buildings that had a swimming pool on the top of this enormous set of new apartments and the swimming pool jutted out as if it went out into into space and part of the housing had to be kept for local social housing as well but they had created gates and barriers meaning that all of the social amenities that were available for the people who were paying whatever one two three million pounds for the apartments none of those could be used by the people who lived in the same building but had a series of barriers and gates between two both sets of those and I mean, that that's something that happens a lot
1: yeah and it is happening in, it is happening in dublin as well and in terms of those i know the where there's part five and um, 10 or 20 percent of the apartments um, some of the facilities aren't able to be used by the social housing tenants so listen rick the book yeah <laughs> i'm tentatively asking <laughs> as a taking a, a you know as a a long-standing, you know, well-respected book critic in Ireland. What was your take reading it and your I mean, honest you, you, appraisal? You,
2: yeah, you should have asked me in advance because I could throw the hatchet in here and, and, and you know, you'd have nothing, nothing to be able to do about it. No, we, I, talk, I talked about this uh, online already. I think the most interesting thing about your book is we're so assailed by information when it comes to everything. And if you're you know, like me, somebody who works in the media or somebody who absorbs media, you can read 30, 40, 50, 60 news stories a day on varying topics. Mm. And so you think you have some sort of handle on, to put it in air quotes, the housing crisis and why yeah. the housing crisis exists. And you read stories that are individual parts of that uh, in newspapers every day and every week. The best thing about your book is it then takes all of those things and puts them all in one place and sits them in front of me and goes, here's how you draw the line between A, B, C and D. And that's sometimes, even for somebody who absorbs as much information as I do from news and current affairs, that needs to happen. So there were a lot of things in your book that I knew, that I had read about, that I was aware mm. of, developments, things that were that were happening in different parts of Dublin City in particular. But it's only when you started to look back historically and then look at how all of this came to pass and look at the years from 08 onwards. That's a great section in the book where you start looking at the difference in housing prices and in rentals after the 08 crash. And it's only when you've had it all put in one place in front of you that you go, my ears are starting to steam and I, you know, this is something that is getting under my skin and something that i feel needs to be read about honestly i would put a copy of your book in the hands of every single person in the country and tell them go away read it and see how you feel about the housing crisis after that
1: well i'll take that i'll take that stick right. it on the
2: back of the book that's <laughs> that's what you get what you say stick that on the back of the book that's what you're getting that's that's the long form quote
1: yeah no that's brilliant that's that's really and it is interesting you know, hearing how you say, you know, putting the different parts of it together, which I was trying to do because and also trying to paint it in a way, you know, write about it in a way that people could connect to it as well. Because I think so much of the housing sort of discussion is, you know, statistics and abstract kind of policies. And I was really trying to put that kind of human, not just a human face, but tell it in a way that people could see, you know, these connections um, between the different parts. And, and you obviously picked that up.
2: Yeah. And and it's even sometimes there are are elements of it. I mean, one of the things that that, that, uh, took me so much about the book is where you talk about social housing and again, put that in air quotes, because Mm. for a lot of people, in 2022, who maybe have no experience of ever having lived in it, or come from it, or had families in it, social housing means something radically different than what social housing actually is. Yeah, you know, w- w- when I, when when my parents were, were were getting together and were were growing up in in flats. In Drimna, it was, and you talk about this in the book, it wasn't just something that that people from one p- particular kind of social strata lived in. There were unemployed people who lived there, there were people who had manual jobs who lived there, there were people who had very good jobs who lived there, there yeah. were a couple of people who owned their own companies, small businesses who lived in, in in flats when when I, you know, when I was born there. It was always something that had a, a complete mix of people in terms of who they are, what they did and where they came from. Obviously, that's that's changed in recent years. And then it becomes this shorthand for troublesome people and for social hassles because of, you know, because of mistakes that were made over the course of the last 30, 40 years in in, in terms of of, of a a lot of different places in Dublin. But the whole idea of social housing in and of itself is something that is to be aspired to. I mean, you probably say to me, if you could take one thing away from your book, it's build social housing. That's the way to start solving all of the problems as they are and as they exist. I realise I'm a total amateur here. I've no no qualifications in this whatsoever. Just a lifetime of, of of observation and of of you putting these together and putting them up, and particularly in the international context of what social housing means in other countries as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no. I and I think it is. I'm delighted to hear that because it was something in a way where I was trying to recover social housing in a way, but. Also reimagine it because, you know, it has become so stigmatized. And, And I, you know, I write about that. That was on purpose. You know, it was on purpose to, to downgrade it by different interests who wanted to make money from housing. Essentially, and if you have lots of public housing and you know housing, lots of social housing, it means that there's less space for private interest to make money from it. And that's the reality. Um. And it was also, you know, I talked about it and it's something, again, that I think is really interesting in Ireland and, and how, you know, values are changing and we think about things. Like I do talk a lot about this, that, you know, the Thatcher idea that it's just, you know, everybody's an individual and there's no such thing as society. And that this kind of idea of social housing challenged that because it said, well, actually, you know, people do need, we do need society. We do need government. We do need these things because not everybody can just survive um, with either wealth from backgrounds or and particularly in housing. And I think, do you see a cultural change in our attitude that I think I see particularly amongst younger people, but across that there's now a growing realization that actually, we need to go back to social housing in a different way. But social housing is almost, I think, now much more in our wider attitudes, something that people are seeing, we need to do that now.
2: I think so. And I I think the more the more Irish people who and unfortunately, as you said, this is one of the the, the side effects of uh, of the situation as it exists and has done for the last 15 years. There are so many young Irish people who are leaving the country and having to go and and live elsewhere. My eldest son is 24 years old. He lives in the Netherlands and he's lived there for the last couple of years. He went off initially to do his master's uh, and he did it and enjoyed it and then decided to stay on because he realised he liked the culture, he liked the people, he realised that housing was much cheaper there than it was here. And he's now in a situation where he's doing an, an internship with an international organisation, which, OK, doesn't pay enormous amounts of money because it's an internship, but he has lots of good friends. Uh, he can afford to pay all of his bills. And he knows that if he had to come back and live in Dublin somewhere, he has, he would have no way of being able to pay for any kind of semi-serious accommodation even living with any number of people anywhere in this city, but he can live comfortably where he's living in the Netherlands.
1: And how does that impact on you personally?
2: Uh, There's two things. Um, There's part of me that, would have loved to have been him when he was 24 I, I was never i i i i travel as much as is humanly possible now i got bitten with the bug in the last maybe 15 years maybe yeah. as 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 money allowed me to have a few quid to be able to go and travel at places and, and do things i would have loved to have been that that guy when i was 24 i would have loved to have been off living somewhere and you know meeting new people from around the world and he does, he has this, it's strange, despite the fact that one of the things he does is at the weekends, he slings points in an Irish bar as well as doing the day job during the week. So he meets, you Irish, he meets Irish people through that. Yeah, But most of the people he knows because of the university he went to and because of the, the course he did, a course, in, in international relations, most of the people that he knows are from other countries. So his, mm. his best friends are from South Korea and are from Portugal and are from Eastern Europe. And it's given him this view of the world that he would never have had, potentially, had he just stayed at home and found himself a, a, a job somewhere in Dublin. But, yeah, obviously, as a parent, you know, it's hard doing the, the the weekly WhatsApp calls and, you know, doing the check-ins. But, you know, it also gives me an excuse to go and see him every now and then. So that's also quite nice. <laughs>
1: that is, that is. And I do think because, you know, in researching for the book as well, there, there was something around the emigration phenomenon um, that really struck me. Um, and I've spoken about this, you know, that this is, in a sense, the first generation, you know, who've had to emigrate or can't return because of the lack of housing. You know, it was jobs before. And I think that like and I'm in, you know, in touch with people as well who emigrated and want to come back and they have kids and that. And there's a real I think particularly as, as children get older, as parents get older, it becomes harder for some people who want to come
2: back. Yeah. And I I think it's interesting. One of the things I took from the book as well that you were talking about was the idea of protest and perhaps why there aren't more stringent and in other words why why isn't everybody out in the street with flaming pitchforks yeah. and the, the the two things that potentially lead into that are, as you said yourself the number of young people who've had to leave the country over the last say 10 years yeah. and traditionally younger people are always those who are those who will most agitate for social change that that affects them it is rarely you know older people um although it can be frequently when it comes to, to certain social issues but when it comes to something like housing you know a lot of people are, are well taken care of, thanks very much, and maybe they don't necessarily think about how their kids are being, are being affected. Um, and social media as well, because everybody thinks that, you know, yelling about something on Twitter is going to get changed, whereas, of course, it won't change a darn thing. I read a wonderful book um a while back by uh, Ece Temelkaran. She's a Turkish um, uh, journalist and writer. And she has written a couple of books about dictatorships and about, particularly about Erdogan in her home country of Turkey, where she's not allowed to go back to anymore. But she wrote a second book, which essentially was about optimistic politics. And it was about the idea of how you can potentially change things with optimism. And she had said, one of the things in it is, just if you would like to change something socially, don't try to do it through social media. You need to actually go out, you need to lobby your political representatives you need to actually physically protest you need to attempt to change the world as much as you can yourself because ultimately you yelling about it all day every day on social media can just be ignored and doesn't really change very much
1: Mm, that's really interesting and and it's i think it's something that you know i I would completely agree with that because there's a lot of you know people do ask that question if the crisis is so bad you know where is the protest and Mm -hmm. On one sense, you know, I would point back to kind of Apollo House and that occupation that happened in 2016. And then there was significant protests like occupations that were happening of Mount Joy Square by the young people in through the Take Back the City, which was kind of 2019. And there was actually a big protest in 2018, had about 10,000 people at it, organized by the cross-society um, trade unions, uh, civil society groups, raised the Roof. But then, of course, COVID had a major, major impact. Mm. And I think that You know we're now coming out of that, and we're starting to see there's a new tenants union called CATU, which is trying to organise and is organising tenants, and there is actually a protest taking place um, Saturday week by that Raise the Roof coalition again, which hopefully will have people at it. But I do agree with you. I think that there's a real issue, and I see it again, and and for the research for the book saw it when young people in their early twenties, mid twenties are going, we're just getting out of here. Then that that you're right, that kind of dynamism for change is kind of dissipated
2: yeah and that's not to say and i i I don't want anybody to think that i'm suggesting that you shouldn't you know attempt to positively agitate for social change on social media uh, because it obviously it can be incredibly helpful in amplifying certain messages Mm, but just that ultimately it's not going to be what gets the job done in the end that Physically, you, you've actually got to go and do things in the real world in order to make that happen. And and you're right. You know, there are a number of reasons, maybe as to why that hasn't happened up until now. But this could be, or 2023 or 24, could be the year for change.
1: It, it could be, and I think in particular, what what I'm seeing as well is that the extent of young adults and not so young adults who are living at home with their, you know, parents, you know, is really significantly increased, even through COVID, as the rental crisis has worsened and. There has to be a breaking point, I think, you know, where people just go, you know, enough is enough. But um, Rick, just in terms of, I suppose, anything else you took from the book you you thought was particularly interesting or.
2: Well, you know, I'm the sort of person who marks things out. So as I'm going through something, I will be the person who puts like boxes around everything that I think is particularly interesting. I loved the idea and I went back to look at it today again. You were talking about the number of private landlords in yeah. in Ireland and the stat that you have in the book is that in the 1940s it was about 25% of uh, of of tenancies were with private landlords in Ireland in the 40s roughly and then that went mm. down to about 17% in the 60s and down to about 13% in the 70s. Yeah for, for me that was a, a shocking number because yeah you know it's but there's there's always a, a, an element of that if you feel something has always been the same way if mm. as you've grown up You know, anybody I ever rented from, from the time I was 19 years old to the time I was, you know, 43, was a private landlord. So you you presume that then that has always been the way. But whereas, you know, looking back historically, that's not necessarily always the way it's been.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And that is something that's really interesting. And of course, the nature of that landlord changing to the real estate investors now as well is a very significant um, change and that kind of what I call the financialization uh, and is known internationally as that financialization of housing. Um, you know, I, I think it's something that is really strikes me that, you know, the question of housing and I suppose the wider economy, and particularly, you know, you're seeing people who mightn't think it's affecting them. I think increasingly now everybody in Ireland realizes that housing affects everything.
2: I hope so. I mean, and and I hope it's not just, you know, the the, the likes of of you who who this is your area of expertise and you're writing about this and you're talking about this on, on, on radio and TV or the likes of people like me who want to read around the subject and want to know more. You would like to think that there isn't a sufficiently cushy subsection of Irish population who, you know, can afford to be the bank of mommy and daddy for their kids when their kids mm. need, you know, a, a, an enormous deposit to, to to buy a house somewhere. Um, I was wondering about that phrase, the, the, the bank of mommy and daddy. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever known anybody who had you know as you said for an average house these days who had like 80 or 90 grand sloshing around that they could afford to give to one of their kids for a deposit of house i know they're there i know there are many of them i know there are entire suburbs full of them i've even lived in yeah. them a couple of times but the idea of of that being is something that maybe people like that think about or that that affects them i i don't necessarily know if if, if that's true but for for everybody else I think it's something that's becoming far more part of of, of, the front of their train of thought as time goes on. Yeah, yeah.
1: Listen, Rick, I wanted to to finish, I'd asked you to recommend a couple of books. Oh, I did.
2: Yes. uh, I brought some with me.
1: Yeah, read and they might be interested in. So... Okay, I, ahead.
2: I, I would keep it really quick on these. And they, you, you asked me to pick potentially nonfiction things that have uh, have elements of, of, of social policy in them as well. I read a couple of great things over the space of the last couple of years. The first one is called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Uh, and it's by a guy called Andreas Malm. Um, Andreas Malm is one of the, the thinkers on climate policy uh, oh. who occupies a space that not an awful lot of other people are. The question he asks in this book, and it's got quite a provocative title, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. It sure does. Is, is why has the global climate change movement not made the move into c- proper civil disobedience? In other words, why haven't they started blowing up infrastructure of mm. fossil fuel companies? Why has the move not been made from peaceful protests and from large uh, large uh, groups of people protesting in the streets? I mean, you, you see small elements of it. Of it. Now, the throwing soups at, uh, soup cans at our thing is is a distraction. As, as far mm. as I'm concerned. I think I think that was interesting the first time it happened. But if, if it's all people managed to do, art isn't what has caused the problem when it comes to climate change. You know, you, you, you need to be doing something different. The question he asks, though, is that why has that civil disobedience not moved forward into a more militant phase? And he goes back and looks at other uh, other historical movements that were seen as being predominantly peaceful and they mostly were. Everything from the civil rights movement in the United States to the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa. But, but goes back to to show that there were always moments in which those movements had to make some form of move into civil disobedience that was more militant okay. and how that happened where it happened and then how the you know sometimes those of those organizations then Try to disavow it decades later, and suggest that those sort of things never happened. Really interesting, really, really smart book, and only about 100 and, 170 pages long as well. It's called "How to Blow Up a Pipeline" by Andreas Malm. Um, Fascinating. I'm wow. going to give you. I'm going to give you this, which you might like as well. Uh, yeah. uh, this is a guy called Rolf Dobelli. The book is called "Stop Reading the News: uh, A Manifesto for a Happier, Calmer, and Wiser Life." Um, it started off with uh, Rolf Dobelli uh, is is a, is a is a writer who was asked to go in and give a lecture in the Guardian newspaper by I think. Alan Rusbridger was still the editor of The Guardian at the time, and he went in and gave a lecture to all the journalists in The Guardian and essentially said, all everything that you're writing is nonsensical. Uh, It's all just infotainment at best and you should stop doing what you're doing. Uh, Rusbridger took his speech that he gave and put it in the newspaper the following day in order to try and create conversation. He's not suggesting that news shouldn't exist. His suggestion is that if you want to know more about the things that, that affect our world, whether it's politics, whether it's climate change, whether it's housing policy, that obsessing yourself by reading news constantly every day is not going to get you there that if you do want to understand these things you need to take a much broader overview and a longer overview i'm sure he'd be very happy with your book because one of the (laughs) things he talks about is reading books about the subjects that you're interested in because they always take a much more long-form view than if you're constantly reading information that's being drip fed to you through through news outlets
1: that's really interesting and of course it's in some ways though it goes against the whole. you know the news industry in a sense and even increasingly social media and even our phones in terms of you know what the the feed is on your you know your news feed and of course the advertising that that goes in there
2: yeah and and, and you know one of the the, the 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 things he tries to point out in the book is that it, you know Ultimately, if you are interested in certain subjects, I like he's got these great headers within the book like, that in, includes, sorry, I have my copy here with me somewhere, although it's getting dark where I am, um, is news obscures the big picture, news is toxic to your body, news reinforces hindsight bias, and news is outside your circle of competence. And he makes very compelling arguments in, in all of those. Again, quite a short book as well, only about 160, 170
1: pages. You're making me feel bad about the length of my book now.
2: That's <laughs> look. <laughs> You've done what you've done and there it is.
1: <laughs> Listen, that's great. Did you have any others or is that it?
2: I've one fiction one. And, you know, if you, if you want yeah, to finish great. off with this and, and um, if you want to know about where the world is today, always read speculative fiction that is set slightly in the future, because the job of good speculative fiction um, that is set five years or 10 years or 20 years in the future is really to illustrate where the world is going today. Mm. I will give you uh, Tender is the Flesh by an Argentinian author called Agustina Basterica. Uh, She wrote this a couple of years ago. It is set in the very near future, in which uh, the global meat industry has collapsed. There has been a virus. It makes the meat of animals toxic to the human race, so nobody can eat animals anymore. So what the human race has done is it has pivoted to farming human clones for eating purposes. Wow. Now, it's an interesting thought experiment. It is a super dark place to go. But once mm-hmm. you've read it, you kind of go, oh, yeah, I can understand how there are people who would go, this makes total sense. And ultimately, the whole thing is about the the, the global meat industry. Anyway, I came out of reading the book, never wanting to touch a steak ever again. I felt very icky about the whole idea of, of and actually, I've, I've eaten an awful lot less meat since I did um, read the book at the time. But it's a great piece of um, Argentinian speculative fiction. It's called Tender is the Flesh. Her name is Agostina Basterica. That only came out a couple of years ago.
1: Very good. Very good. Well, listen, that's some great recommendations. And uh, I know what it is will be really interesting. And I'll definitely um, go, I think the news one sounds really interesting. And I'd like to um, get stuck into that now that, uh, well, for me, it's it's actually hard because I'm constantly trying to read. Housing is moving so fast. You have to be reading all the time what's going on. And so actually the, um, been able to, I feel guilty sometimes reading fiction.
2: You should never feel guilty reading fiction because everybody needs reading time that is their off space. So, you know, I I read quite a lot for for work as well, but for for different purposes. Mm. I never feel guilty when I go, okay, tonight, this is my reading for myself phase. I'm actually at the moment, the last week or so, I don't have anything to read for work now until the beginning of 2023. So I've got six weeks in which I can just read for the crack and read for fun. So it's very pleasurable.
1: Very good. What are you What are you reading at the moment?
2: Uh, believe it or not, I've started reading a, a couple of things, uh, uh, older things that I have, one of which I've read before and one of which I've never. So I'm reading Sean O'Foylon's short stories. I'd never read Sean O'Foylon before. Um, yeah. I've got a collection of his short stories in a second-hand bookshop in Paris a few months back. And it's an old copy from the 1960s. And I'm loving it so far. Many of them are set in the War of Independence. And I'm reading Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which is set in a gulag in the 1950s. And I haven't read that in about 20 years so i'm rereading that for fun because that's what i do rory i reread sojournates <laughs> for the crack
1: good man rick i'd say uh, it and the housing crisis are probably uh on a parallel there in terms of some uh level of yeah anyway the um that's really great and i really appreciate you taking the time to come on
2: i really do and and thank you now I love talking about I love talking about anything that is not outside my circle of competence I can have a go at and try and make myself sound like I know what I'm talking about so so thank you very much for 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 having me on and uh, I appreciate.
1: It. Yeah no listen Rico thank you so much for joining me on Reboot
2: Republic. Thanks a million Rory cheers.
1: And that was ricochet there great uh, reading recommendations and absolutely of course the one he's recommending most is to get read his gaffs, uh, my own book and if you haven't got it uh, please do go out and get it and um reminder as always uh, reboot republic uh, produced by tortoise shack media and um, we are a completely independent media and we rely on patrons to support us you can go over to tortoise shack um, on patreon.com and if you can donate whatever you can or sign up Um, you get the podcast first. And also a reminder, I'm down in Limerick next week, the 24th in UL, uh, University of Limerick at six o'clock and in uh, Wickham Place um, at half seven as part of the Raised Roof. And there is the Raised Roof protest on the 26th of November, Saturday, Dublin. Please, please be there. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you all very, very soon.